It's November 1918, the most horrific war the world has ever known, World War I, has just ended. But a global pandemic called the Spanish flu is beginning to spread. President Heber J. Grant becomes the seventh church president and dedicates a new temple in Hawaii. Church leaders visit faithful Maori saints in New Zealand and encourage them to prepare for their own temple. These historic moments are next in chapter 14, Fountains of Light and Hope. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Melanie Rewai Couch, a Pacific Area Church History Manager for the Church History Department, and Jed Woodworth, Managing Historian of the Saints Project. So thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Jed, it's great to have you back on the podcast. And Melanie, it's really nice to have you joining us. So our listeners might be interested to know that this is a first for the Saints podcast, where we have participants from three different countries and three different continents. So we've got myself in the United Kingdom, and we have Jed and Shailen over in the United States of America, and Melanie joining us from New Zealand. So it's rather exciting. And Melanie, I think our listeners are going to be interested to know a little bit about who you are and what you do. And what is going on with church history in the Pacific. So would you mind just taking a moment to get us up to speed? Sure, thanks, James. Uh, As mentioned, I'm Melanie and I live in New Zealand. I'm in the South Island of New Zealand and I've worked for church history for a little under a year. And my area includes New Zealand, Australia and the Pacific Islands. What we're up to at the moment, well, we also have the Matthew Cowley Pacific Church History Centre, which is the only museum outside of Salt Lake that belongs to the church, and we're busy. Uh, We've got a new exhibition, which is dedicated to the labour missionaries who built the Church College of New Zealand and the Hamilton New Zealand Temple. And right the way across the Pacific, we're busy uh, calling and training new church history specialists, uh, particularly to help with collecting um, annual histories and oral histories at the moment. Thank you so much. So Melanie, would you mind telling us a little bit about the Matthew Cowley Pacific Centre? Sure. So Matthew Cowley served as a young missionary in New Zealand, I think from 1914 to 1919. And one of the pieces of work that he did before he completed his mission was to work on the translation. Actually, he revised the Book of Mormon translation in the Maori language and also worked on the translation of um, the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. And he was very beloved by the Māori people because of his fluency that he had in our language and he lived amongst the Māori people. So later when he returned in the late 1940s as a mission president, he was very much welcomed back. And he had a catchphrase, which was kia ngāwari. It doesn't have a direct translation, but it means to be kind, to be humble and to show love one to another. So if you are driving outside the Hamilton New Zealand Temple, there's a very large roundabout and it has on the side of it Kia Ngāwari, which is in honour of Matthew Cowley. And when we were able to open our own church history centre here in New Zealand, it's made up of a reading room, we have our own archives, we have our own museum, and we also have a theatre space. And we have a staff of about 10 full-time 
or church service missionaries who serve there along with about 30 or 40 volunteers who act as guides. And we have a number of exhibitions which um, testify of the restoration. They tell the story of the church in the Pacific. It includes a number of special artifacts and items that we treasure here, which talk about the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ to New Zealand and the Pacific. Well, thanks so much, Melanie. And we'll come back to this tour of the Pacific that's mentioned in this chapter of the book. But we want to jump back first. As we're introduced to this chapter, we start with the death of Joseph F. Smith and Heber J. Grant becoming the president of the church. Jed, will you tell us a little bit more about Heber J. Grant? What was he like as a person? Well, Heber J. Grant once described his personality as fiery. He could be quick to rebuke, but he was also generous to a fault. He had a soft spot for widows, probably because he was the child of one. As a young apostle, he would quietly find out the names of Latter-day Saint widows who had mortgages on their homes, and then he would pay them off without telling anyone that he had done so. He was also a worrier and an insomniac. He could fall asleep okay, but he routinely woke up in the middle of the night with church problems on his mind. A lot of the correspondence we have from Heber J. Grant was dictated in the middle of the night or early morning hours. Sometimes he tried for hours to get himself back to sleep by singing hymns or reciting scriptures. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Early in his presidency, he discovered the game of golf, which helped him relax and enabled him to sleep better at night. And even later, he learned that if he took a nap around the noontime hour, right after lunch, he slept better at night, which was a paradox to him, but it worked out. I like to say that uh, it's no coincidence that Heber J. Grant, a banker and an insurance man, was in charge of the church during the Great Depression. I think that was really the outstanding feature of his presidency in that it allowed him to keep the church solvent. And we actually experienced great growth during that time with the welfare program and plotting two new temples, one in Idaho and one in Los Angeles. So the Lord does not make mistakes, as Joseph F. Smith said to Heber J. Grant on his deathbed. Sounds like a fairly remarkable person. I mean, I can't imagine being very functional in the middle of the night, just waking up like that. But you mentioned about the financial crisis that President Grant had facing him. But what were some of the other challenges that he was facing as the new president of the church? So President Grant had a number of challenges when he became president of the church in 1918. The first one that was pressing down upon him most was his lack of experience. President Smith had served in the first presidency for over 40 years. And although Heber J. Grant had been an apostle for many years, he had never served in a first presidency. He'd only been Quorum of the Twelve President for two years. And so that meant that he was not familiar with the business of the first presidency. Now, because he was in a quorum with two counselors, it made sense for him to select the same two counselors that President Smith had. That was Anton Lund and Charles Penrose. He also took over during a worldwide pandemic, the Spanish flu epidemic, and so it was raging in the United States in November of 1918. His first general conference was pushed back three months because the Utah Department of Health had outlawed large gatherings, so that made it impossible for conference to be held in the Salt Lake Tabernacle. He also was not a doctrinal preacher. 
And he felt that he did not know the scriptures as well as his predecessor did. And and few did. I mean, to be clear, President Smith was a great doctrinal preacher who could preach on one verse of scripture for an hour and a half, for example. President Grant excelled in telling stories, especially stories taken from his own life that told a moral principle. And so he taught a practical gospel where behavior was more important than knowledge. And again, I think that this was an important step in the church's development to have those stories in circulation as Latter-day Saints were leaving the Great Basin and going out into the world, and saints outside of the United States were staying in their congregations. We needed a model of how to be in the world. How do you be honest? How can you be moral, upright, faithful, and so on? And those stories were put into circulation and allowed people to understand what they could do as they lived in a world where they were an extreme minority. I love hearing you talk about his personality, the things that he was dealing with, his challenges, especially when he just felt like maybe he wasn't the best choice following President Smith. Something that stuck out to me in the chapter was when he was just saying, I had so much anxiety and fear that I wouldn't be inspired enough in comparison to President Smith. And then he said, I feel, however, there was no occasion for my anxiety. But personally, I appreciate him using the word anxiety. It makes me feel more normal, kind of as an everyday member of the church, you know, knowing that a prophet suffered these sleepless nights, this anxiety that he just didn't feel good enough. And I think a lot of readers will relate to that too in their various callings or various situations in life. And I just thought that that was a wonderful addition to the book, just to kind of share a little bit about his personal life in that way. I agree. I'm proud of the fact that Saints is the first publication that I'm aware of that really talked about President Grant's anxiety early in his presidency. And even to use that word, as you say, it's a powerful word that is in our vernacular today. And You know, I think if we step back and look at why we were sent to earth, well, we were sent to experience all manner of of things, both good and bad. And that includes biological challenges and difficulties, cultural difficulties. And part of what makes the atoning power of Christ so sweet to us is that it can rescue us in our infirmity and it can lift us. And if we didn't have those infirmities, how could we then appreciate what the Savior does for us? And so I think we see that with President Grant's life where he had challenges, but they were not debilitating challenges. And he certainly drew on the powers of heaven to rescue him, to help him get beyond his challenges. Well, Jed, you mentioned the gulf that President Grant plays, which is one of those really interesting insights that maybe not many people knew about. But in fact, I wonder if people really know much about President Grant anyway. Saints, this particular volume is covering a period of church history that few members are, are going to be particularly up to speed or comfortable with. And given that we're in a pandemic right now, we have these assumptions that we've always used little sacrament cups, but that hasn't been the case. And I think some readers will be interested to know that the introduction of the small cups, originally these were little glass cups, but actually that that predates the pandemic. This was something that President Grant and other church leaders were involved in discussing in the 1910s, 1920s. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the relationship between science and religion during this time. 
Yeah, so the relationship between science and religion in our church is one that goes back to the Joseph Smith era. Joseph Smith himself talked about human invention as being a gift from God and something that we should welcome. So we did have a tradition of welcoming advances and innovation and invention. In the early 1900s, the First Presidency embraced germ theory, meaning that it accepted the findings of science that germs were real and that they could be damaging to health. And to that end, they did stop using a common sacrament chalice, which was commonly used in wards up until about 1912, and then the presidency banned them. Now, this is also coming about in our culture at large at that time, where it had been discovered that buckets, which are like modern drinking fountains, buckets with a single cup that were used publicly that they caused a disease to spread. And so when those were banned, the church also banned its common chalice to use in sacrament services. So we don't want to lend the impression that the church was leading out in this. It was changing its practices about the time that other people were. But at the same time, the church quickly embraced the change and were able to move to a sacrament cup that we know today that was glass, in some cases tin. And I do want to mention also that the church valued vaccination. In 1900, the first presidency endorsed smallpox vaccines at a time when they were controversial and many Latter-day Saints disagreed with them. And I think in the long run, the wisdom of their embrace of that vaccine has been proven to be sound. Jed, one of the parts that we read about in this chapter is Heber J. Grant's trip to Hawaii to dedicate the Laie Temple. And I think in the stories he's been featured in so far, he's just had to deal with these pretty stressful situations. And now he's just comparing himself to President Smith, as we've talked about. What was this experience like for him going to Hawaii? So President Grant When he went to Hawaii to dedicate the temple, he was quite anxious about the quality of his prayer. He was anxious because, again, he was comparing himself to President Joseph F. Smith, but he also knew that President Smith had served in Hawaii as a missionary, knew Hawaiian, had many friends who were Hawaiian, and so he was nervous that he would be judged as falling short when he was actually in Laie. And so he delayed working on the prayer. The prayer, of course, is the most important document pertaining to a dedication, and it's a long document typically. And so he knew that he needed to come up with something that was befitting for the occasion. He delayed until just a day or two before the dedication. He was actually in Laie before he even started dictating any part of the prayer. And and he had a marvelous experience. He wrote later to his daughter the next week, actually, that The words just flowed, and he was able to dictate a prayer that he thought was beyond his natural ability. And it was a confirmation to him that, in fact, his calling was accepted in the heavens and that his ministry thus far as church president was acceptable. And he was so proud of the prayer that he published it the next month in the Improvement Era, which was the church's main periodical at that time. So That was an unusual step to publish a prayer at that time. So, Jed, here we are with one of our recurring characters, John Whitso, being called as an apostle. And I can only begin to imagine how much of a life-changing moment that that is for him. 
But I wonder if you could tell us about the implications that this new responsibility has on the Witso family. So John Witso was called as an apostle in 1921. And as you can imagine, that calling changed his life. Prior to that time, he had never served in a bishopric or in a stake presidency. And so this is not the kind of person we might expect to see called as an apostle, but he had served as president of two universities. So he had managed large organizations prior to his time. He was a very faithful man. He was a published author. He was a known commodity. One of the things that he had going for him, in addition to to everything I've said, is that he was Scandinavian. Now, today, we don't think of someone's birth in a certain country as being critical to their call as an apostle. But in John Witzel's case, it did matter for this reason. The man who died, who left an opening in the 12, was a First Presidency member named Anton Lund. So when Anton Lund died, he was the Danish apostle, and President Grant did say that he felt it appropriate to replace one Scandinavian with another. So John Witzel, having been born in Norway and his mother converted there, they immigrated when John was a, a young boy. He still had many connections back in the old country and had visited there many times. And so it ended up being a poetic connection that, that John Witzel, having come from Norway, was then installed as a new apostle. Well, John is certainly had his life changed by this call, but I can only imagine how it would have affected his wife, Leah, and also his children. And I wonder if you could just give us some insight into how it would have affected Leah. So when John Witzel was called as an apostle, of course, this calling implicates family. His wife, Leah, had been associated with church leaders for many, many years. Her mother, Susie Young Gates, was the daughter of Brigham Young. And so she had grown up hearing many stories about President Young. She was only three when he passed away, but she knew many church leaders. But that's quite a different matter than being requisitioned into your husband traveling every weekend, visiting state conferences. And she knew that she would be expected to give speeches to gatherings of saints. This was in some ways a change to her routine, but she was also well prepared for this task. She was a popular lecturer in her own right on matters of domestic science and health and nutrition. And as the wife of a university president, she had spoken in front of hundreds of people before. And so this, again, I think teaches us that the Lord prepares people for the callings that they are given. I appreciated hearing her perspective. Not that I was surprised that she was so optimistic and supportive, but it was pretty refreshing to hear how truly supported and on board she was, because that's a difficult thing to ask of of a person, of a family, of a wife. So I appreciated hearing what she felt. So there are other changes in church leadership too at this time. Susie Young Gates feels her influence waning and Emline B. Wells is a long-serving Relief Society president. And we would just love to hear from you, Jed. Will you just tell our listeners more about what it meant to be a general Relief Society president at this time? And why was this particular change, an important moment in the history of the organization. When you think of 19th century Latter-day Saint women, very quickly you come to Emmeline B. Wells. She was involved in virtually everything of import to women in the 19th and early 20th century. For example, 
She was the co-founder of the Women's Exponent, which was the magazine for Relief Society. She took Brigham Young's charge to have the women be involved in sericulture and took it aggressively. She never forgot that the women should be working to be self-sustaining, creating silk, harvesting wheat and storing wheat, as well as being involved in all manner of charitable action and activity. And so she was a great proponent of women. She also worked to help Utah women have the right to vote returned to them. So she was quite pleased when in 1920, the United States passed a suffrage act allowing women to vote. But in early 1921, her body was giving out. She had reached her 92nd year and she was not able to function. She was confined to her bed. And the brethren felt like it was time to make a change. This was a difficult and painful decision because she had served so long and so faithfully. And we had no tradition that had already begun to release a General Relief Society president. So as would become the case, her release triggered then a new pattern where the General Relief Society and primary presidents had a a tenured service. Well, we've been in Salt Lake City. We've been talking about church leadership. Now let's take a moment to head away. Let's go over to the Pacific where we're able to read and learn about the church there. Melanie, I wonder if we could start by just getting a bit of an update Sure. So I mentioned earlier about Matthew Cowley serving as a young missionary from 1914 to 1919. And some of the things that were happening in the lead up to this time is we had the opening of the Māori Agricultural College, which was a school attended by young Māori men and owned, run and operated by the church. We had things happening which made it actually quite difficult for missionaries to be serving in New Zealand. There were some issues with the government letting uh, new missionaries come in and then later also not being able to replace missionaries. But we did have good things happening as well, which uh, particularly, as I mentioned, around the revision of the Book of Mormon and the translation of the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price um, being put into the Māori language for the first time. And we know that in 1910 that we had about 4,000 members and about 90% of them were Māori. There was great success with growth in the church amongst Māori people. The next sort of figures we know in 1930, there was about 7,000. So around 1920, I guess we've got around 5,000, 5,500 members. Most of them are Māori. We have Māori leadership. We've had great success with missionaries who are fluent in the Māori language and who are living with Māori people. We had that lovely synergy where a lot of our Māori values and cultural principles aligned really well with the gospel, things like genealogy, the importance of family, charity, love, uh, which all have Māori language and cultural equivalents. I guess the gospel is a little bit like putting on a glove. It was a lovely layer for Māori people as we joined the church. What was happening though going into the 20s was we started to have fewer missionaries speaking Māori language. In fact, David O. McKay actually made a statement that he wanted our missionaries to be conversational in Māori language because it was starting to decline so much into the 20s. 
Melanie, when we read about Elder David O. McKay's visit um, to the Pacific, this is the first time that an apostle has come to New Zealand. What would it have meant for the members in New Zealand to have an apostle of the Lord with them? I think it would have been incredibly significant, particularly if we think about the Maori spiritual leaders, sometimes referred to as Maori prophets, who foretold the coming of missionaries to Aotearoa, New Zealand. People like Paura Potangaroa, who predicted that the church would one day come from the east and that the missionaries would learn the Maori language and that they would pray with their hands raised and these sorts of elements. And so for so long, it's one of the reasons why mission presidents were so revered because they were our most senior sort of presence. So to have an apostle would have been hugely significant. And I think that's reflected in the way that Aramake was received when he arrived at the Huito. And the Huito was an annual gathering of Māori saints, very much like a mission conference. But they started back in 1885, and they happened nearly every year, right the way through until 1958. And so these gatherings were predominantly held on marae, which are Māori community centres. Uh, most villages or towns would have one or more marae, and this was where the important talk took place. This is um, the equivalent of the community hall, you know, the discussions, whether it spanned politics, education, health concerns, anything else, they happened on the marae. And by church leaders having these gatherings on the marae, it just created such a congruent experience for Māori people that that same sort of cohesion that made the gospel and made the church feel so natural and normal for Māori people. And again, another reason why Māori people wanted to flock to the church. The huitau themselves were attended um, by hundreds, if not thousands of people every year. And as well as discussing matters relating to the missions and the church and the gospel, they provided an opportunity for sports and recreation and cultural performances. There were often themes that went along with those, and they weren't held in the same place every year. So they would move from a different district to a different district. And when you went, they would erect very large outdoor marquees or tents, and they were where the meetings were held, but also where people slept and where people ate. And just so much food preparation, so much input from the whole community to feed and host, and the concept of looking after guests and feeding people well is another cultural value that's taken pretty seriously here. And so the hui toe sort of enabled all of that expression to come together. So welcoming Aura McKay into that space was a very big deal, a very big deal indeed. I think what you've just described, it sounds like an enormous amount of work, all of the preparation. So the conference, the hui toe, do we find that, because this must have affected local communities when they're setting up all of these tents, is this something that people that maybe weren't Latter-day Saints would go to as well, or would they have been invited to these large gatherings? Absolutely. In the history of the Huito, we've had Māori royalty attend, we have communities attend. In fact, since 1958 was the final year in 2021, we actually had the first Huito happen again. 
And we know that not only did it bring so much of that community together again, that the impact and the number of people who had that positive interaction with the church and the legacy families who joined the church many generations ago and were participating in Huito have come to the Huito in 2021, felt that pull of the invitation and of their ancestors and have learned about what was so important to their grandparents, their great grandparents and has just provided that forum for a softening of hearts and has been really well received. In fact, um, there's a quote by David O. McKay that he wrote in the Improvement Era, and he said um, about the hui tau, it was plainly evident that the Māoris had assembled to learn more of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not merely to be entertained. The earnestness, faith and devotion of the audience, the manifestation of the inspiration of the Lord upon the speakers, whether native or European, the excellent music and the confidence, sympathy and brotherly love that flowed from soul to soul, all combined to make every service a supreme joy. And, you know, so much of what we see sometimes in terms of cultural elements are sort of err on the side of entertainment or err on the side of long ago. But what we saw through the hui tau was just how relevant and important culture and our emotional well-being and our physical well-being and all of those things sort of came together in this event, which made religion and spirituality just another dimension of our whole selves in that space. I think that's a really powerful way to look at it because this seems to be the intersection of culture and religion, of belief, of family, of community. I think what I'd say is these do happen in other cultures, but we don't recognize them as cultural elements because they're the way we live. So you mentioned, you know, just having had Thanksgiving and feasting and expressions, and I'm sure people will have gone outside and maybe thrown a ball around or, you know, done all of that sort of stuff. So this was just um, very organized and so important that it happened like clockwork and people would know that this area or district is hosting this year and the next three or four years exactly where that was going and that was so that things could be prepared well. So yeah, I think it's a really nice celebration and what I love about it is being way out in the Pacific is the church came to New Zealand and it enhanced who we were and brought us into Christ. But it didn't replace who we were, but it was that ultimate sort of working through of the synergies between us and I believe, you know, right at the core is that desire to make covenants and all of those things were just a natural progression. And so the church added what we already knew. Well, Melanie, we read in this chapter that the temple in Hawaii brings the temple closer to New Zealand, but it's still thousands of miles away. It's still a very difficult journey and sacrifice for people to get there. Do we know if many New Zealand saints were able to attend the temple in Laie? Yes. So originally, I think there was a group uh, that may have been invited to attend for the dedication, but something happened and they didn't. And so the first group went in May 1920. Um, originally, I think it was going to be a group of 10, but uh, 14 of the saints were able to attend. And then after that, each year, you kind of have between about 10 and 15 saints who either attend as a, as a whole group or in two smaller contingents each year over to the temple in Hawaii. It's great to know that it was bringing it closer to them, that they were incrementally getting closer to be able to enjoy the blessings of the temple. Yeah, well, David O. McKay at the Hui Tau actually said that he could see a temple coming to New Zealand and to prepare for its arrival. 
And so I think that was a lovely invitation. And the fact that where that was spoken was so close to where the Hamilton New Zealand Temple is today was great. Yeah, that is amazing. So I think the various saints volumes have tried to better represent the history of the church in the Pacific and the church globally as a whole. But can you tell us about the ways members in the Pacific today view or engage with church history? It's a really good question to ask because I think most people can tell their own conversion story or perhaps how their family came to be associated with the church. And in fact, many people, you know, just in the community uh, might say from time to time, oh, my grandmother was a Mormon. (laughs) But we are working really hard to try and increase um, knowledge and awareness of church history, particularly in the Pacific and particularly in New Zealand, where we have such a rich church history. So a few of the ways we're trying to do that, one is with the Matthew Cowley Pacific Church History Centre in Temple View. It's in the Wendelby Mendenhall building. By having a reading room, uh, by trying to build the amount of literature that we have available that people can engage with, by people being able to come in and people can actually request, for instance, and say, hey, I'm in Elkington. Can I learn more about church history that affected my family or where our tribe was from or where our people are from? And the wonderful staff of the museum have been preparing geographically based church histories so they can actually see what the history was relative to the region where those families have come from. And our temple's been closed the last three years. We're waiting for it to be rededicated while it's undergone some renovation and earthquake strengthening. And one of the other things when people return is we will be releasing two films, one short and one slightly longer length called Building for Eternity, which tell the story of the labour missionaries who built the Church College of New Zealand and the Hamilton New Zealand Temple and about that spiritual legacy and their story of sacrifice and consecration as they did that. We are constantly trying to update our materials. We have our own preservation facilities within the centre and Temple View. So we're really grateful to have that. So we're more than a records preservation centre. We're actually a bona fide museum and we have that capacity to do that. We do service the whole of the Pacific though, not just New Zealand. So it is really important that what we do is become a resource for, for the many countries and the Pacific Island nations that are in our area. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Melanie. It's got to be telling that the first international museum of church history is there in New Zealand. It's covering the Pacific. I think that's a testament to the historical faith of the saints, but also the faith and the willingness to serve that we see today. So my congratulations to you and the saints. Well, Judd and Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of Saints. We've really appreciated the perspectives and the information that you've brought to us and to our listeners. And for our listeners, we've talked about a lot of people and a lot of places. And we just want to remind you that there are church history topics that will provide additional information to these people in places like Heber J. Grant, like the Temple Dedications and Dedicatory Prayers, the Relief Society Organization, the Influenza Pandemic of 1918, and of course, New Zealand. And we hope you'll check those out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.